0: I am so happy to be here, I have, it's, yeah, I'm really happy to be here, that's, that's perfect, this has been over a year since uh, the invitation has been issued and so I've been looking forward to it a lot and I have two friends, three friends that I have had here at Kingswood, Dave and Angie Smith and Dr. Weatherby are my friends. And I am so glad to be reunited with them. But I'm going to have a lot more friends after my time here. But it's wonderful to be with you. It's wonderful to get out of teaching my classes at IWU today. I have somebody. I love my classes and love my students. I am really shouldn't have said it that way. But, um, you know, it is it is kind of a, a special to just step out of that and step into a different setting. So I'm more than happy to be here. And uh, I and worshiping along with you singing that chorus that my heart's desire for our time together is that my heart will be completely God's so that together we can explore and understand the things of God in a in a little deeper way Uh, so I'm delighted to be here I love to share about worship Uh, that is just what God has been doing in my life really for my whole lifetime so um, i never decided or thought I'd be what I am, uh, but God's calling on my life has uh, unrolled by faith over many years. And uh, so I'm here as a result of that ongoing call. And one of the things, I would say the primary thing that God has been using me in is just to um, help my own vision of worship enlarge, biblically speaking, and then to help others to have a larger vision for worship but that is really rooted in the Holy Scriptures and not in our own uh, making, so to speak. Uh, and I think worship, as you all know, is 24-7. I don't think any anybody debates that at this point, um, that there's a fluidity to our life of worship. We live lives of worship. At the same time, there is an appointed moment for the church weekly that we understand to be corporate worship. And that dynamic changes a bit for that appointed time, whether it's Sunday morning at 11 or Saturday night at 630. God keeps appointment with God's people, and there's some special things that happen there, some special parameters, some special dynamics that, in fact, um, prepare us to leave the tw- lead the 24-7 moments lives of worship so to say that worship is all of life is true. At the same time, that is not to say that all of life is the same in terms of what we encounter or experience in worship. And so my uh, my calling is to help the church um, take a look at that those specific moments in the life of the church, the gathered community worship. And this morning... I think, well, first of all, I'd just like to say that's our present vocation. It's our calling to worship God now, and it's certainly our eternal occupation. It is what we will be doing for eternity, and I think it's the most important thing that we can capture now in preparation for eternity. So I'm real excited to be here and to to just unwrap this with you. I consider myself a co-learner with you Everywhere I go, and certainly it's the case with my students at Indiana Wesleyan, I learn probably more from them than they learn from me. And so together we are co-investigators of what this worship event is. And I fully expect uh, that when I leave Kingswood on Sunday that there will be a lot in my mind and heart that you have uh, posed to me that will give me more reflection. So I'm not the answer queen. I'm not here to um, to hand, hand down, you know, any sort of thing to you. I, I look at what I do as um, the body of Christ discovering together God's will for worship. And God has a will for worship. Please don't let anyone tell you that worship is whatever we want to make it, and then let God baptize that with some sort of blessing from on high. God has plans for our corporate worship together, and those are discovered in the scriptures. And I'm really spending my lifetime trying to figure out and discover what are God's expectations for worship. And that is my, if you said to me, what is your your life passion or goal, I would tell you that. It is to understand God's expectations for worship. And so we're still on that journey of discovering what that is. And today, it'll just be one other little step in the journey. I'll tell you right up front how I want to go about today. And uh, I was told that PULSE emphasizes active minds, active hearts, active lives, and probably more um, active habits and so forth. But uh, what I hope to do is approach our PULSE time this way. I'll share some... Thoughts with you and some teaching with you, and then we will do small group interaction at the tables. And I'll have that uh, on prepared on slides for you. Uh, and so we'll go through our our time together in an alternation of I'll share some, we'll do some talk back. I'll share some more. We'll do some talk back, and it's kind of a, I'm, I'm gonna happen in that direction. Please don't worry about what's all I put. Uh, too much on the PowerPoint, so don't feel like you like this isn't a, a classroom. I feel like you had to write everything down. Just let that be your prompts for thinking, uh, and it's just our way of kind of letting you see visually how um, it's organized throughout the morning. And uh, also, th- these segments aren't the same length. So in fact, the first one or two are a little longer, but I'll end on time. Don't worry. And uh, some of them are shorter, so don't when you're keeping track of time, don't think, uh oh, she's only on two, and we're like. Uh, not, you know, it's mostly over. So, I, I think I know where I'm headed, and we'll pace it good, and we'll get everybody involved, and and we're good to go. You all ready? Cause I'm ready. So here we go. Uh, we're prayed over uh, by many people. I've been prayed for a number of times this morning here on site. I've got prayer warriors at home praying for us, so we're covered, and we're we're excited about the day. If there's um. Maybe an extra stand. I could use it just uh, anywhere around. I could put my Bible and also on the sheet on the tables. There's a little handout, and that's uh, free for you to use at, at different points. It's not. It's just for a couple of the different sections that we're going to be going through this morning. So let me begin with a couple stories, true stories, to kind of set the stage for our time together. A few months ago, I was I received a phone call from Jonathan. Jonathan is the director of worship at a large megachurch in Charlotte, North Carolina. This church offers contemporary worship services for, for four campuses. Thank you, Shane. That's going to help. And so every Sunday morning, they take place in different venues all over the city of Charlotte. Jonathan is the worship director of pastor, but he has young men In this case, they're all men who are around 30 years of age who are actually full-time worship pastors at each one of those sites. I had not ever been to the church. I never didn't know who Jonathan was. And he called during our spring break, and um, usually... I don't get phone calls during spring break, but uh, our secretary, one of our assistants, called me and said, there's this guy, Jonathan, and he just needs to talk to you so badly. And so uh, we actually spoke over my spring break. We did get connected. And he said, I'd like to set up a conference call with you. And it turns out that they had been studying as a worship team, the worship architect, And they had been going through it week by week, and he said, this has really been helpful, but we have questions. We just love it. If you could do a conference call, and we can kind of just have a a meeting with you to sort out some of this stuff because of some of the issues at their church. There's about 4,000 in attendance between all the campuses, they told me. And, you know, at the end of the conversation, it was really interesting to me because we had this discussion about passive worship. And one of their... Biggest burdens that they were feeling at this megachurch was this. We feel like we're doing stuff up front, and we feel like the people aren't engaged or participating. They're just watching us do stuff up front, and we're uncomfortable with that after a reading <laughs> The Worship Architect, and we want to know if you, know, you can help us with that. So freeze frame that, megachurch, 4,000 people struggling with participatory versus passive worship. Not long after that, I got a phone call from a pastor in Columbus, Ohio, and he called me, somebody gave him my name, and he said that in he has a, a multiple services, traditional, contemporary, blended, the, the whole routine. And he said, you know, in the contemporary service, it's really bothering me a lot that Our people are asked to sing, but that's all they're asked to do. And so we ask them to stand and sing, and then there's no other part in the service for them to play other than to sing. And I said, well, what bothers you specifically about this? I was trying to get to the bottom of it. And he said, well, part of it is that even that, they don't seem very engaged. And I said, well, tell me about that. He said, last Sunday I was called out on an emergency, and so I came back in um, while the band was on the stage, and they were already underway. Usually, he said, I sit down front, but because I was called out, I slipped into the back, and I wasn't prepared for what I saw. And I said, what did you see? He said, I saw about 300 people standing and watching the band sing. And I said, Really? And he said, yeah. And I said, you didn't know they weren't singing? And he said, no, I had no idea my people weren't singing. He said, a few of them were kind of moving their mouths, and and they were watching, and they seemed pleasantly entertained. And, and a few of them, mouths were moving, but I could not hear any song going on. And he said, and I asked him why, and he said, well, they're all behind me normally, and I never was watching them from the back. And And the band was loud enough that I assumed they were singing, and nobody was singing behind me. And I said, what's the problem? He said, well, now we've got kind of a performance going on, and I'm concerned about the people in my church thinking that this is a worship concert, these are his words, instead of corporate worship. That's a second scenario. Here's a third. Uh, I visited a traditional service in a church in Ohio, And the same story kind of rolled out, but in a little bit different manner. Most of the service was presentational in nature, though it was traditional in style. And so what I saw was that a choir sang, and the people applauded. And three young girls played simple recital pieces during the offering, during the offertory time, and people applauded. And a vocalist sang a beautiful, beautiful solo, and the congregation applauded. And the pastor preached a, a really good sermon. Nobody applauded that. I wasn't quite sure why he didn't get applause, but okay. And um, the congregation functioned a lot like an audience. There were people up front that did certain stuff, and then people clapped. And um, third scenario. Now, I could go forever. But what's interesting to me is that in all three scenarios, different styles, the same problem was presenting itself itself. And that's what uh, I want to kind of work through today. I hear all everywhere I go, I hear, honestly, I hear this. Passivity is a problem in corporate worship. And it really doesn't have to do with a particular style. I think uh, any church, any style can be guilty of this. And I don't think anybody intends it. I really don't think any worship team or pastoral staff gets together and say, hey, how can we make worship passive this week? Um, I don't think that happens, but I do think what happens is that we're not thinking through um, the biblical understanding of worship, the expectations of worship, the engagement of worship, and that's what I want to go for today. Now, I understand that in this room, and it's the same where I teach at Indiana Wesleyan, you have men- several different majors represented in this room and not all of which are worship majors they should be of course but not all of you <laughs> are worship majors and so some of you have direct responsibility for worship leadership some of you don't have direct responsibility but I've got good news for you today and that is this all of us are worshipers all of us are worshipers and I have come to believe, and this is not my own opinion, everywhere I go, I hear real leaders saying this, my people don't get it. My people don't know how to worship. No one has told them. No one has told them how to do this event. No one has shared with them that this is their holy duty, their holy responsibility, And that it is not a moment to get fired up so that we can move on with the rest of our life. But it actually is a holy responsibility given to us by God. And so in the room, if you're a worship leader or not, it doesn't matter for today. Because what we want to talk about is how would we disciple people in their holy act of worship, which is their first calling, is to be God worshipers. So to begin, uh, I'd like to help us capture the big picture. And this might sound extremely elementary, but I don't think there's anything better than a good definition. And I think that there's a lot of confusion out there as to what worship really is. One time, one of our worship major classes, we have a worship major at IWU, and I'm responsible for that degree, and one of our classes did a You know, kind of a Jay Leno on the street interview all around campus with a camcorder and said, what is worship? To all of our students, and probably 30 students and 30 definitions of worship. Uh, So I think just gathering around something clear will help. What is worship? I'd like to begin with a definition. Uh, And it is this. If you're close enough to read, will you read this with me? Worship is the expression of a relationship in which God the Father reveals himself and his love in Christ and by his Holy Spirit administers grace to which we respond in faith, gratitude, and obedience. This is not my definition. I couldn't write one this well. Robert Schaefer is uh, taught at Fuller Seminary, is now deceased, a Presbyterian minister. It comes from one of his works. Before I discuss this definition, uh, most of the small group time will be, you know, 10 minutes-ish. This is two minutes, literally, and I'm worried about how I'm going to get you called back. So whenever um, I call time, (laughs) would you try to, you know... uh, gather back quickly, so to speak, um, in terms of your attention. But I really only mean two minutes. In just your neighbor, not the whole table, but just with a neighbor around the table, will you identify two or not more than three, let's say two key words and phrases in this definition for you. When you read that, what one or two words or phrases seem important to you and why? Two minutes just with one person. Go. Thank you. Thank you so much. Now, uh, at different spots throughout our time together, we'll try to do a little informal Q&A stuff. But for now, rather than have a reporting back time, in a smaller group I would have a reporting back time. Let me highlight for you A few of the strengths of this definition, I should say that I'm not sure worship can be defined by one person. In fact, on my computer at home on the desktop, I've started to just collect definitions of worship. I have a whole lot there, and there's a bunch of good ones. I think this is just a very good functional one um, to help us out this morning. And so I I think it's strong because it, it shows the relational aspect of worship and worship is certainly a relation, relational in nature. Uh, it is dependent upon God and people. And you'll notice throughout this morning that I'm pretty careful to say God and people, not God and individuals, because one of the distinctives of corporate worship is that it is a people gathered before God, as opposed to our individual times with our personal devotions. A second strength is that you'll notice that it really, and Brent already alluded to this. I appreciate it so much. There's a sense of revelation response here that God reveals God's self. God presents God's self to us. God announces who he is. God discloses. And it's to that self-disclosure that we have something to respond to. Now, class... Which one comes first? Revelation. Revelation. Of course. But even in some of our worship uh, services that I attend, guess what has happened first? We come responding to God when there has been absolutely no announcement that God is even present and that God has called us and that God has initiated In that sense, response revelation is backward. It's rather pagan, actually. Uh, Revelation is saying, here's who God is. God has called us, come into God's presence. The God of our fathers, the God of our mothers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is here. And to that, we say, here I am. And so, I think that important um, sequence is is necessary. I also like this definition because I'm sure you discovered already. Ready, it's trinitarian, that all persons of the Godhead are active in worship. I also think it's strong because I love this. Particular responses are named. It's not that we just respond, but we respond in faith. We respond in gratitude, and this is the connection between worship and 24/7. And and I. And I love to hear what Pulse is doing in terms of active service, but I think obedience is um, is critical to understanding corporate worship. Uh, I studied with someone that I'm so thankful I was able to study with a, a gentleman named Robert Weber, and uh, I teach also at the Robert E. Weber Institute for Worship Studies, and some of you, when you're done with this degree, should consider the Master of Worship Studies, and Dr. Weatherby can tell you all about that um, better than I can. But uh, one time, Dr. Weber was visiting classes, just cycling through our classes at, at school, and came in, sat down, and it was Q&A time. He said, what would you like to ask me to the students in my class? The students, One of the students raised the most profound question I think I've ever heard raised. The question he asked Dr. Weber was this. How do you know if you've worshipped? Pretty good question. How do you know if you've worshipped? Is it because you showed up? He didn't say this. I'm elaborating now. Is it because you sang songs? Because you closed your eyes and raised your hands? You know what his answer was? His answer was instant. You know if you have worshipped, if you find yourself in ever-increasing obedience to Jesus Christ. If you are obeying him more, the chances are likely that you have been worshiping because worship changes us. But you could look at it the other way around. If you find that you are not growing in obedience, you might take a hard look at if you've been worshiping. So, interesting. I like the definition for all those reasons. Now, I want to show you another, a little paradigm that is like a model or a metaphor for worship that I'll explain However, um, I'm just going to tell you up front, it's not a perfect, just like there's no perfect definition, it's not a perfect model. I, I think it breaks down at one point, but I'm not t- going to tell you where because I'm going to use the model. Uh, you'll, you'll, you may discover it anyway. But I like using it for this reason. It, it proves a very important bigger point. And a 19th century Danish philosopher, Soren Kierkegaard, wrote of the audience mentality of modern worship. Maybe you've seen this before. Some of you in the room maybe have. And it looks like this. Kierkegaard said, Worship in the West is starting to resemble what it's like to go to the theater. He said, when you go to the theater, you see actors on the stage. And they're on a stage like this, and they're performing a play. And the audience comes in and sits down and watches the actors perform a play. And the audience gets to decide if they like the play or not, if the actors were convincing or not. And they show their favor or disfavor by things like applause or throwing tomatoes or standing ovation. In other words, at the end, the audience decides and makes a value judgment upon the effectiveness of the play, and that's normal, and that's what it what it is and in a theater we have prompters people off stage behind the curtains that are kind of helping the actors do their thing maybe change costumes maybe change sets maybe whisper in a line if they've forgotten part one of their lines and so there are aids to worship off stage that help actors the very important people do the very important work while the audience decides if they like it or not and Kierkegaard said church is starting to look like that he said up front you have clergy and musicians and trained individuals who uh, are doing things, and the congregation is starting to act like an audience, and they're coming in and have certain expectations about what they're seeing done before them, and that God is some holy prompter that's whispering in important stuff to the performers, the clergy, the musicians, stuff like Sing that song one more time. They're really into it. Um, Pray now so the band can get off stage and no one will know. And God's whispering all this stuff into holy people up here to help them do their job, and the congregation is watching. Kierkegaard said, this is starting to look like church, but he also said, and I completely concur, that's about the most unbiblical view of worship you can find. Instead, he suggests that we reverse the roles, and what we end up with are... Um, the leaders of worship become prompters. They become coaches. They become the ones who only give what the congregation now needs in order to be the performers. You notice how the congregation has now shifted to performers. And that tells me that the congregation is the vital uh, participants in worship and that they're the ones doing the work of worship, that they're the ones carrying out the duty of worship, aided only as much as is needed by the prepared prompters. And then, of course, that leaves the audience as who? That would be God. And God is now the audience. And God, by virtue of God being audience, get this. God gets to decide if worship was worthy or not. If worship was effective or not. If worship is true or not. Because it's the audience who measures the value. And now God is the one who gets to measure that. What I'd like to do is to have you think about it, and on the screen, um, this will be about five-minute discussion, and there's options there for you. Which aspect of Shaper's definition would you like to explore personally? Would you like to explore further, and why? And your leaders will help you with this discussion. How would a Kierkegaard view of worship change things for you? Just read those there. And here's a good one. Is engagement and participation the same thing? Five minutes, have fun. Very good. I bet that was an insightful conversation. It's going to be hard for me in this room to hear you, but I'm going to ask one guy at the table of guys right under the clock, that be you, okay? One guy, to stand and loudly just say, which aspect of Shaper's definition would you like to explore further and why? And we're not going to discuss this answer. We're just going to hear from each other for a little bit. So one guy, volunteer, go for it. Loud and clear. Uh, the I that and why? Cool. Cool. Very good. Thank you very much. Table of women under this clock back there. Somebody um, stand and would you just share a moment about how that Kierkegaard view of worship impacts you or your thinking? Should they be afraid? No. Be of good courage. Very cool. Let me say a word about the Kierkegaard model thing. I think it's helpful, which is why I use it, because it does it's jarring. It it just flips it all on its head. At the same time, uh, one of the problems with that particular model is I think it segments participants into categories and it, it leaves God sort of as an onlooker when, in fact, all three parties, if you will, are very simultaneously engaged. So we'll acknowledge that. At the same time, it's, it is helpful to see um, the hourglass turned, if you will, and put on its head, so to speak. How about... The gentlemen that are in this, with the guy with the red tennis shoes, group. That's you. Oh. Nice, <laughs> nice shoes. Um, would somebody from your table just say, "Is engagement and participation the same thing?" What'd you think? Why don't you stand and share why you say no? Very good, let's clap for one another, all three responses. (laughs) Part two, and though I've kind of uh, thought of these in terms of head, heart, and hands, I also wanna say that, and you know this, that these are not siloed um, aspects, but they're always operating simultaneously together. But the, we're starting out with a little bit more of a, a reflection uh, philosophically and intellectually about it. But we're moving, of course, toward um, more important things, so to speak. Participation, what is it? Uh, what I'd like to do, and this some of this is in the Worship Architect, but I'd like to explain it a little bit in depth. And many of you have not uh, read that. I just want to ask the question, what is participation and what is its purpose? I could ask it another way. Is participatory worship necessary? And who participates? It's a very, very, very important question today in our churches. And I'm going to propose to you that full, active participation of all worshipers is necessary for true Christian worship. Full, active participation uh, of all worshipers is necessary for true Christian worship. I'm going to go through these words in a, in a minute, one by one, and I'll get there in just a second on this participation thing. Uh, I will propose that participation of all people is not only necessary, but it's urgent. There's a sense today that, that participation is absolutely urgent for the church. And it has to do, though, with a different purpose than you might commonly think of. I hear a lot of preachers say, you know, I want my people to participate so that I can tell they're engaged or so that people will come to church, that they will view us as a lively church, but I'm going to suggest to you that um, the Bible portrays participation in a, for different purposes, purposes like these, which I'll get to, that we do worship for the sake of God and that God is interested in our participation because in so doing we minister to God, and that we also do participation well For the sake of others, we do it for the sake of God, and we do it for the sake of others. And this is where I'm headed, as we continue throughout the morning. So I'm not so interested, although I, as a pastor, and as a worship leader, you know, of course, I'm interested that my people seem engaged and are authentically engaged and participative. I'm interested in that, for what they get out of it. I'm interested in that that it might be appealing to others. But I'm not as interested in those reasons as I am participation for the sake of God, participation for the sake of others outside of the church. And and I think that through a little bit of a mini word study, we're going to start to see that that's the scriptural understanding of it as well. Not so much what it does for us, but what it does for God and what it does for others. Participation. So with that in mind, I'm just going to do a little word study and um, newsflash. This is just Webster's Dictionary, okay? So, like, you can do this. Uh, I wanted to know what is meant by participation. Dictionary definition. To take part in. To share in. To partner in any event. That's what it means to participate I became, when I read that, I thought, I am very interested in this word partner, to partner in. uh, Just rose off the page for me. And so I looked up the word partner. And I found that a partner is a person that would be, I have it on a slide there, Shane. Great, thank you. And I hope, I don't know if dancing is allowed, but it is today on the PowerPoint. Okay, so what can I say? Um, to partner is means this. a person who shares or takes part with another, a, compa- for example, a companion in dancing, a companion in tennis, uh, a player on the same side. And so if you're playing basketball, three man pickup, or a regular, five guys on the floor, five women on the floor, playing uh, women's basketball, men's basketball, whatever. You're partnering with those on the floor to make something happen. What is And it's easy to see that to participate is to agree to be a partner in an event. I want to say that again. To participate is to agree to be a partner in an event, in an effort. And there's an investment that has to be made then with every person in the partnership to make sure that this uh, effort gets cared for properly. What is um, the opposite of partnership or participation? The opposite of participation is passive. Passive, according to Webster, is to be acted upon. Someone's acting on you instead of you doing the action passive is to show no interest or, or uh, initiative now what's, what's really insightful to me is this when I look at the many biblical words that are translated into our English Bibles as the word worship I find that all of the words translated into worship in the English are from the original languages each one is active word and not a passive word. From the best understanding that I gain, and I'm not a biblical scholar like my friend Dave Smith, um, you should go to him for any biblical question, and uh, he, it will be answered well. Uh, so I'm not, I mean, New Testament, Old Testament isn't my area, but from every bit of scholarship that I've done in this area over the years, I can't find a biblical word for worship that is passive in nature. And each one is action-oriented. This becomes very important for us. Um, Due to our time limits today, I can't give you an exhaustive list of every word that's translated as worship, and there are many, many in the Hebrew, many in the Greek. But I'm going to give you a couple examples, and I'm sure that you've run into these before in your studies here. But I simply want to show you a few representative terms that seem to indicate God's idea of worship is that it's highly participatory. So the first uh, word that in the Hebrew that I would like us to look at is the word shaka. Will you say that shaka? And in English, you keep, it's in our Bibles as the word worship. But what is that word? And uh, actually, a dev, a um, a translation, definition, and unwrapping of, these ter- of this term involves the possibility of prostrating oneself. What is prostrating oneself, as you know? Lowering yourself physically as low as you can get. Not kneeling, lower than kneeling. Not bowing, lower than bowing. On your tummy, face down, arms up. The most vulnerable position that you can be in. The lowest human position that you can be in to bow down, to soup, to prostrate oneself as in a subject before their master in the olden days. For example, uh, I love this passage in Nehemiah chapter 8. And this this word shaka is translated as worship many, many, many places in the Old Testament. But here's just one. Uh, Nehemiah tells us that when Ezra opened the book of the law, Verses uh, 5 and 6, Nehemiah 8, 5 and 6. Look what takes place. They read from the book of the law of God, the priest did, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. Then Nehemiah, whoops, uh, I want 6, sorry. Ezra praised the Lord, Ezra opened the book, verse 5. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them, and as he opened it, the people all stood up. How's that for action? Praised the Lord, the great God. Another action. And all the people lifted their hands. Another action. And responded, Amen, Amen. Another action. And then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground, and the word "worship" is Shaka which suggests that the people prostrated themselves before the word of the Lord. There's nothing passive about the use of that term. That's just one example. The word in the New Testament that is the counterpart to shaka is proskuneo. Say that, proskuneo. And so the Old Testament word has sort of a Greek um, counterpart. And so therefore it also means... To prostrate oneself, I think I have that on a, yeah, there we go, thank you. To prostrate oneself, to do reverence. Although in the New Testament, some translators believe that it adds a little bit of affection to it, to kind of kiss toward, to blow a kiss, to not not prostration, just to prostrate or to show humility, but in an affectionate manner. And I love this because in Matthew 2, when the wise men entered Jesus' house, Matthew 2, 11, it says that... They saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and worshipped him, paying him homage, Matthew 2.11, and the word is Prescuneo, which suggests that maybe the kings just didn't stand there in their Burger King crowns hats, you know, in the bathrobes from Children's Sunday School Department and kind of glance over at the baby Jesus approvingly. But if you can imagine this, the wealthy, smart guys from the East prostrating themselves before an infant king is quite another picture quite another picture so they worshiped Jesus through action through participation not internally only you know that's, to me there's a very um a very striking and disturbing use of this term in Luke chapter 4 which gives the account of Satan tempting our Lord, Jesus Christ. And in Luke 4, you see that the devil led Jesus up, according to Scripture, showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to Jesus, in, quote, to you, I will give their glory and all this authority. For it has been given to me, the devil said, and I give it to anyone I please. If you then, son of God, will worship me, it will be all yours. That's a rather benign translation, isn't it? Because in English, we only have one word for worship. It's worship. But if we go hunting and looking for the Hebrew and Greek terms here, we're seeing um, there's a little more to this. Now imagine this. The word is proskuneo, and the devil is suggesting that the Lord of life lay on his stomach before the devil. With his arms outstretched before the devil, that's what Satan was asking. You see, what we have to understand is that we just cannot throw around the word worship like we do. There's a whole lot of other stuff in that word that we have to own and figure out. Jesus thankfully answered him, It is written, I will not prostrate myself before you. In saying, I will not worship you. I will worship the Lord only. So I get really excited, and we think about, in the Old and New Testaments, uh, they contain words that are translated in different ways. Another little one, I dyad here is Abad. A Hebrew word is, becomes very important to us because in this word, it talks about worship as work. And the word worship is translated in our Old Testament as worship, but what it carries with it is this thought that the priests and the Levites had duties, had sacred duties, and get this, that was their worship. And so when they were lighting the lamps and baking the shoe bread and mixing up the incense and slaying the animals— and offering the morning and evening sacrifice, those duties were their worship. The work of worship was their worship. Liturgia in the Greek, a very important term for us because it's translated as worship, but behind it is the same parallel, this idea from the Hebrew word avad. This Greek word in the New Testament is critical to understanding of worship. It suggests that worship is work that worship is ministry that worship is service to god that it is the tasks that we do making sure that god is served as god's people is in fact our worship you have this uh, in romans 12:1 i appeal to you therefore brothers and sisters by the mercies of god that you present your what i mean that's a physical action present your bodies I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable worship. Some translations, it's liturgia. Or some translations say which is your, your spiritual worship, your spiritual service, or your spiritual work. Any one of those are fair. Uh, Hebrews mentions this a lot. In referring to Hebrews 9, verse 21, Moses sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. That's Later Gia. Yeah. In other words, the work of Moses. Zechariah, Luke 1, 23. When Zechariah, the priest's time of service, was done, he went home. He was on duty at the temple. His worship was his work. And then, of course, Christ is mentioned in Hebrews 8, verses 1 and 2, as in fact our leitergaz. He is our worker bee in worship. Christ, our high priest, who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, is a minister in the sanctuary. And that word is from the term leitergia. So I think we're beginning to see that there's a whole lot to this understanding of what's at play in participatory worship. Koinonia, one last word. It doesn't mean worship, but it becomes very important in our discussion because koinonia has to do with fellowship, but this key word, participation. And so part of our role as fellow worshipers and brothers and sisters in the body of Christ is to actually participate together in whatever god asks us to do it's part of our fellowship and there's that word again it's part of our partnership and that by virtue of our being in the body of christ we are partners in an effort and worship is our holy calling in the midst of that now a little word of explanation I'd like you to work in groups a minute and here's part of a role play I'd like you to pretend that your small group is really a discipleship group at a local church for relatively new believers, people that have recently been converted, and no one has ever discipled them in worship before. And what I would like each of you to do, every one of you, pretend you're the leader of the group, and I'll give you a few minutes to complete this sentence. So I want you to actually write this down quietly And then I'm going to switch to another slide and have you actually um, role-play this. But I'd like each of you to answer this question. A disciple of, or fill in this blank, a disciple of Jesus will be active in worship by blank. In other words, you're preparing yourself to be a leader to disciple someone else. How would you answer that question? A disciple of Jesus will be active in worship by what? Because, why? So you are going to be explaining to someone who's never heard this before what we do and why in worship. So pretend you're the leader. Complete that sentence. And then I'll flip to another side where you will um, pretend that you are that leader in reading your answers to the group as if it were a discipleship group. Okay. So first of all, complete that sentence just in your own thinking right now. A disciple of Jesus will be active in worship by, um, I think it's the yeah, right there at the bottom of that screen, dot, 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 because, dot, 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 don't tell, tell them how they would be active, but why. Give it a try. All right, here's your task. On the next slide, I'd like you to, as a group, just read your responses around the table and then afterwards, see if there's anything that needs to, you need to clarify or push back or question and just to improve upon those responses. Um, and, and if you see some commonalities in your answers, note those, okay? So practice explaining in one sentence how you would disciple someone else in worship. Go for it. Let's take a 15-second stretch break. Just stand up, stretch, sit back down. Give yourself a little break. (laughs) All right. We're in it for the long haul. We can do this. Now, uh, worship for the sake of God. Turns out, not for the sake of us, ouch, ouch, but for the sake of God. Um, Think of your brain as a big computer monitor, and now minimize the word study over here. Keep it off screen, but it's there. We're going to pull it back up in a minute, Uh, and we'll go to full screen in just a second. You may remember that I asked the question, is engagement the same as participation? Can you participate without being engaged? Can you be engaged without participating? I hear an awful lot of engaged with God talk everywhere. People are all the time talking about that word. I go, in fact, we're having an engaged conference. It's important, big important thing. It it is a hugely important thing. Um, but I discovered something that a lot of the times leaders speak about helping people engage with God. But what they really mean are sort of this understatement purpose, that it's for the purpose um, of them liking our church more and kind of getting more people out. Now, to be fair, I'm sure the goal is to encounter God in appropriate ways in worship, and of course we want people to come to church. I'm not dismissing that out of hand. But if we're not careful, it sort of begins to sound like we want people to be engaged with God so that they'll like us or like worship or like church. And that they'll start coming. Um, The assumption is that if we can discover new things to help people be engaged, then maybe things will turn around for our church. Today, we struggle with anthropomorphic worship. That's that's a word that is really fun to say. Anthropomorphic. Say that. Anthropomorphic. Uh, I've begun to bump into it a little, uh, once or twice out there, and I think it's descriptive Anthropomorphic worship is worship that is about us. That's human-centered worship. Just like anthropology is the study of humankind, anthropomorphic worship is how to make worship about us, so to speak. Um, I think the emphasis is on individuals benefiting from the worship experience. That's anthropomorphic. Now I want to be careful and I want to be fair. We benefit. I count on that. And that's not uh, a bad thing. But anytime our worship planning and leading and, and engagement and participation begins to center on that as its primary focus, we've already made worship an idol. And we've taken it off of its, of, of its rightful place and moved it to the side. Sometimes um, individuals assume that if we can make worship relevant, uh, people will be more engaged. I really believe that we do not have to make worship relevant. Worship is already relevant. It already is. We don't make it relevant. If worship is the meeting between God and people in order to renew a covenant, which we have, in order for revelation response, it already is relevant. It is certainly most relevant because... The presence of the risen Lord is already here among the worshipers. And I got to tell you, nothing in heaven and earth is more relevant than that. I actually believe, really believe, really believe that the true presence of the risen Lord is actually Among us in worship. And I'm going to get to that. And if that is the case. uh, There's not a whole lot more we can do. To make this worship event. More relevant. Than that. Nothing is more relevant than that. Believers together. Worshiping with our Lord. In worship. With our Lord. Through our Lord. And to our Lord. Is the of relevance it's the epitome of relevance and I can decorate it any way I want but what's happening is the decorations are becoming what we do and we have to reclaim the reality of the presence of Jesus Christ in worship the question will never be whether or not Christ is in the room Christ is in the room the question will be whether I notice that Christ is in the room Because his presence doesn't change. In a gathered community for the stated purpose of worship of the local church, Christ is there. Period. Period. I can't make him present. I can't take him away. Christ is there. And once the decorations and the cosmetics begin to overshadow the reality of the presence of Jesus Christ, we are in trouble big trouble, because we're depending on artificial means for engagement when we have the real means already in place. I know I'm getting preachy here, um, but I, I really feel completely impassioned about this, and uh, I think it's a critical uh, circumstance for churches today. Uh. Romans 12.1, I have already quoted. If you can go to this next slide, uh, I I just want to make the claim that connecting to God is what worship is about through the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, Romans 12.1 says, um, well, you're going to read it in your own translations in a moment. Can I sidebar just for a second? I'm going to sidebar. We're going to get, leave that there, Shane. That's good. You also like bullet, 2, It says that you're to observe um, as many significant things about this passage as you can, and if you do so, Dr. Smith will love it. Um, observation upon the passage in one second. Jesus the Christ um, has a role to play in worship. And this weekend, um, I will be sharing more about this in the Engage conference. But Jesus the Christ, our risen Lord, plays two roles in worship. And I'm only going to just briefly say what those are right now, elaborate upon this this weekend. According to the scriptures, according to the scriptures, Jesus Christ, unseen but fully, really, there, receives our worship as the God man, but also is our lead worshiper among us as the God man. It turns out that for reasons I will explain later, in the scriptures, especially in Hebrews, Jesus Christ is portrayed as among the brothers and sisters as the lead lighter Goss, the lead minister of worship who the scriptures say who sings with us our praises to god who pra- takes our prayers and sanctifies them and presents those perfect prayers to god who names us as his brothers and sisters in the great congregation and is present not only to receive our praises, but actually to be our lead worshiper walking among us, singing with us, offering prayers to God. He's both at the same time. Why? Because he's incarnate God. He's the God-man that can do more than one thing at once. That's the epitome of multitasking right there. He can receive our praises and do the praises all at once. And you see, once we capture this, we begin to understand that anthropomorphic worship is is a, um, a decoy. And the church leaders, a lot of church leaders are following it indiscriminately. And I mean to cast no aspersion upon any sincere hearts that are trying to do whatever they can to make worship relevant at all. But I am calling the church to saying, good luck with that. Because in the end, what you're going to get is some pretty neat techie toys and forget that the risen Lord was actually there. And if we do nothing else, if we do nothing else, at least make that claim, that every Sunday morning or whenever your primary service is, stated service of the church, it must emphatically recognize the real, active, participating presence of Jesus the Christ. I will tell you that if I did not believe that, I would not be in minute worship ministry. I would not for a minute be in. I'd leave it aside. I'd go away. But I actually believe that. And worship ministry must center there. It must, re, it must revolve around that reality. I have nothing else to claim. I, you can tell. <laughs> I feel pretty strongly about this. But I'm here to proclaim it. And a church needs to own that. And and I promise you, I think I could promise you, that if your church would claim that in all its power and all its might through the working of the Holy Spirit in you, I think it would revitalize your church. I really do. I really do. So with that in mind, what I'm trying to say is that worship is for the sake of God in Jesus Christ. That worship is to minister to God. Worship is to give God what God is due. And now, um, in your groups, would you just begin to connect a little bit in your heart with God's heart by following the screen prompts? I think they're pretty clear. And I also think in a little bit while, we'll have time for uh, some Q&A and stuff. So if there's stuff that you're burning to ask on, we'll try to get there, okay? So um, open your hearts as you share with one another. What's on the screen? Thank you. I have a question for you. Um, There's a lot to talk about on these slides. But did any one of you actually able to formulate a prayer and do number four? Any group? Would would one of you just do it? Do that prayer? And even if it's not complete, finish it out. Use we language. Don't be afraid. Should they be afraid? That you should not be afraid. Are you are they among friends? Be Be of good courage. And tell me your name, Haley. Haley. Haley's going to say, let us pray, and we are going to pray. So this isn't an exercise, it's a prayer. Um, But we will be thankful for whatever comes, and we'll receive it as from the Lord, and she feels put on the spot, but you'll be fine. So Begin with, (laughs) let us pray.
1: Let us pray father thank you for revealing yourself to us as your body because of your mercy you've revealed how to live in right relationship with you and because this prayer is not finished we continue in a heart of prayer towards you to keep learning from you
0: and from constance Amen. amen thank you very much Um, The things we say in worship involve multi-layers. Part of what we say in worship, we sing. Part of what we say in worship, we pray. Part of what we say in worship, we speak to one another. And the words really matter. Because it is all of those words together that form the text of our worship, the script of our worship, if if you will. And in some places, it's completely extemporaneous. In other places, it's prepared at different levels. But whatever the case may be, and in this case, it was a mix. It was a blend of preparation and conclusion that was spontaneous. Whatever that happens to be, the words have to represent the truth about the event. We are in a particular type of event. And I I think I already said that uh, it's an event because... It's an an action going on already. And by the way, our worship in your local church is only one small part of ongoing worship that never ceases. And in the heavenlies at this very moment, heaven is full of the worship of God. And our worship simply joins in that and continues on, and our verses our our voices are merged with the heavenly voices, and not only vertically but horizontally and often well on every Sunday morning, I have a, a prayer list of people that are pastors that I pray for. I have for decades the same set of people unless they die, and then they go off <laughs> but um i I'm aware that Worship is happening simultaneously this way. And so I'm praying for other churches and saying, all over this good earth, God, on this Lord's Day, there are people in every tongue and voice now praising you and take those praises. And so our little worship has to be understood in, t- in context of something bigger, something deeper. And so when I ask you to pay attention to words of prayers, it's simply to say that we need to pay attention to everything we say in worship because it's forming our text this week. In my uh, Introduction to Christian Worship class at at IWU, uh, we had a a whole week on prayer and being leaders of prayer in worship. And so we're working on getting out little things. And one of the things we're working on is getting out the word just out of our prayers. And I just thank you that you're here, and I just pray you a blessing, and I just, I just, I just, I just. And so I did much of what I did with you, Haley. Um, I said, is there a student that will open our class in prayer today? And um, not only will you be praying, but you're going to be practicing as a leader to kind of work out the word just. And so bless Josh's heart. Josh raised his hand true story, and he said, I'll do it, Dr. Cherry, and so I said, okay, begin with, let us pray, and Josh said, let us pray, dear Lord, we just thank you, was the first word out of his mouth, of course you know what happened, the whole class just roared, and broke out into exorbitant laughter, I did too, because I said, calm down, Josh, it's okay, I mean, that word is there, but we're practicing these things, because they matter, and because we're leaders, Let's move to part four, worship for the sake of others. Do you see how I'm trying to shift it from anthropomorphic worship to worship for the sake of God? Now worship for the sake of others. Uh, And this, I think, is a very, very needful um, little conversation to have. Participation happens when worshipers offer their bodies as a living sacrifice But worship also happens on the corporate level. And in fact, we're talking primarily today about corporate worship. And so I want you to maximize that word study screen and bring it back up to full screen for a moment. Remember that Webster defines participation as to share in or to partner in. And one of the fundamental features of Christian worship is is just its corporate worship. Individualism has become a problem in much of Western worship, and while it's true that God relates to individual persons, and while it's true that God issues the invitation to salvation to individual persons, and while it's true that Christian discipleship is demanded of individuals with the expectation of personal response to the triune God, nevertheless, we are called to faith in community, period. That is non-negotiable. Scripturally speaking, we are not isolated believers who want to follow God on our own, but we are members of the body of Christ, and we have to operate within a fellowship of Christ followers who are committed to living as residents of the kingdom of God. Can I get an amen? Amen. Community is non-negotiable, period. There is just no biblical foundation to really believe otherwise. Corporate worship, then, <laughs> becomes the primary avenue for God to relate to any Christian community. Corporate worship is the setting that God chooses to be the primary avenue for community fellowship, uh, relationship with God. By God's choice. This is the predominant setting God has in mind, corporate worship. And when faithful followers are gathered weekly for worship, we understand that we're holding a corporate conversation with God empowered by the Holy Spirit. God is understood to be present. This is not a meeting about God. It's a meeting with God. And the believers are called together to hear from God and to offer ourselves anew in response to God. Now, corporate worship doesn't just happen because multiple people are in the same room. And unfortunately, in many places, we lead people to believe that we can all gather in the same spot and have worship our way, individually. Corporate worship happens uh, when worshipers invest fully in the event. Now, here's the deal. For the sake of those around them, first of all, for the sake of God. But now I'm going to challenge myself to be a full participant in corporate worship for you and for you. And now I'm not here for me anymore. I'm here to help your worship get on, get along over here. And help your worship be strengthened. And I have a self-surrendering of my own needs in worship so that the worship of the community is strengthened. You and I have an investment to make. And I come to worship not primarily to get something, but to invest in the worship experiences of my partners my peers who are beside me in worship, so that I help to raise their level of awareness of God's presence. That's a scriptural understanding of worship. I sing in such a way that your song is encouraged, and so I don't get to opt out of the singing anymore, and I don't get to mumble the words anymore. Why? Because I'm going to sing with strength and conviction so that your song is strengthened and I don't get to decide whether or not I will participate by doing anything other than to help your worship get better I proclaim the historic faiths faith of the creeds with my voice in order to strengthen the voice of the community I'm not saying I believe in God the Father almighty creator of heaven and earth, so that I can remind myself what I believe. I'm saying it so I get to hear the voice of the church saying, take that, God. This is what we, your people, believe. And my voice becomes one entrance into a mighty voice. And I pray with devotion not to impress anyone, but so that those praying around me will witness one more prayer of faith being made and that maybe their prayer is strengthened. I listen to the sermon attentively, not because only that I will gain something from it, but I'm listening to encourage those around me to listen. To participate in worship in the biblical sense is to play a role in the effectiveness of other worshipers. Certainly this idea is what Paul had in mind in 1 Corinthians when he was talking about, um, in 14, chapter 14. Um, When you come together, everyone, everyone, everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation. Everybody got something to do here. Bring it on in. For the sake always of, from Paul's point of view, always for edification, for the benefit of others. Right now, I'll be honest, I go to a church that God has led me to. I am a pastor, and I served as a pastor, worship leader, and I mean other churches. I've been in ministry in the local church a long time. Most, uh, in, in two capacities, either as a worship leader full-time or as a pastor, either full-time or part-time. And until recently, I was a pastor part-time of a church near our campus because I'm a full-time professor, but I could take a part-time church. And, you know, this is a time in my life, only the second time in my life, where I have not been in a leadership role on staff of a church. Um, I am no longer the pastor because of my schedule. And so I had to give up that church, and it tore me apart. But I did that so I could do things like this, because this is what God is doing in my life. And so, you know, finding a church is a hard thing to do if you're a pastor. And right now, I attend a local church, and I have for a number of years, just since I gave up this church. Um, And it's not the church you would think you would see me in, whatever that would look like. A small little church, good people, really hokey worship. Um, I don't know if this is being taped. You know, the, the choir is so energetic and pretty big for the size of the church. But their director doesn't read music. And they sound like that. And, you know, it's it's just rugged. But for a number of reasons, which I won't share with you, I'm certain God wants, is, this is my church. This is where God has led me, and I own this church in, in the sense that I'm in, this is my people. I, I'm in. Every Sunday, it, it's a little hard. But, you know, I said, God reminds me, worship isn't about you. And worship isn't about perfection. And worship isn't about whether or not you think that choir anthem sounded very good, because I'll tell you it didn't, musically speaking. But I am called to sing with all my heart, to listen to that anthem with all my heart, to enter into the prayers with all my heart, to listen to a pastor that just reads out of a concordance for 30 minutes with all my heart. Not because he's a bad man. He's a great man. But he's untrained as a preacher. And so my job is to invest in their worship and to take away all my expectations and to say, am I going to be a worshiper as a full active participant in this place? simply because Jesus the Christ is here, and these are his people. And my job is to be a good worshiper for the glory of God and for the sake of others, regardless of what that may benefit me at any point. I, you know, I mean, this, is the, this is what I, I understand it to be. Uh, biblical worship is self-giving. We offer worship selflessly for the sake of God and for others, and when we enter into the liturgy of worship, we do so to bless God with the intention of strengthening the worship with others. That's the best biblical understanding I have of this at this point. And do you see how different this is from saying, well, how can we make worship relevant? You see how different that is? participation for the sake of God and others happens precisely because we give worshipers opportunities to do the work of worship so as worship leaders wherever you find yourself your job is to figure out how to get all the duties of worship out to the people so they get to do the work of worship that's their job and now I just get to facilitate that and guide it a little bit and coach it and exhort here and and join in there just to help this happen, the best that I know. So what if we're convinced that we need to be far more intentional about creating services that are less passive? The first thing I know to do is to get ourselves off the throne. And so in this next screen, would you take a quiet moment now and not discuss this, but just write a prayer to God, you, personally, right now, a prayer of confession for the times that you have made worship primarily about you and your needs. And I've given you a model. This model is the traditional um, form of a prayer of confession, historically, for many centuries. So simply do this. Will you right now just write a prayer? I'm not going to ask you to pray it for the group, and we're not going to discuss it. Address God by name, Mention an attribute or a promise of God related to worship. State your sin in relation to worship. Express sorrow. Pray for victory. And conclude the prayer. This is a prayer of confession that I too will will form up here on my own, confessing to God that sometimes we've made worship about us and not about God and others. Do you understand what I'm asking you to do? So you won't share this, but... Write a prayer of confession to God concerning this matter. Don't make it long, just simple. One sentence for each part. Dear God, you are worthy of our worship, you are holy the one high and lifted up, the one true God. And yet sometimes we make worship about us. For this, we are sorrowful. We are sorry for the offense that this has caused you. We pray for the victory that is promised to us in Christ Jesus, our Lord, that we might become worshipers that have you and our sisters and brothers in mind. Do this in our lives. We pray so boldly in the name of the one who is worthy of all worship. the name of Jesus the Christ, amen. And I've got good news for you. Jesus has given us a word. Through his own disciple, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's good news, right? Amen. Now, lastly, uh, how do we move from passivity to participation? Uh, on On your little handouts there, I just want to explain to you what I think program worship is. I think I see a lot of program worship, which now from the Kierkegaard model, we're kind of come full circle back. We see stuff going on up front for us. Uh, Program worship is this. Uh, There's a definition up here. A A program is a sequence of events with performers, any program, that is designed to instruct or entertain the public. So it could be a dance recital or a concert band or a travel log about Alaska or uh, some sort of lecture about conflict in the Middle East. All of those are programs because they're put together by people that are designed to instruct or entertain. And worship sometimes has kind of felt like that. But there are three major problems with program worship, at least. First of all, program worship is about something rather than to someone. God is, the in program worship, God becomes the topic rather than the source. And so sometimes in our program worship, it's sort of like God is up above watching us and we're talking about God and singing about God and so forth. The second problem is that programs are typically passive. I mean, when you think about it, that's what a program is. Generally, the attendees are not involved except to observe. I mean, at most programs. And the third program problem is that program worship invites judgment. All programs are judged according to their effectiveness of the speaker or the performers. And so it's completely natural to expect that churchgoers are going to judge the program if you have performed for them a program. And so they're going to be judging you and criticizing you on what they liked or didn't like, what they learned or didn't learn, and what their view of excellent or poor happens to be. Now, we need to move away from this, and so I have a couple of suggestions, and then I'll do just a little Q&A here. To move away from program worship, and there's a flip side to your uh, handout that this might be on that side of it. Number one, plan for God to be the source of worship rather than the topic of worship. So what we need to begin to do is really work on um, the way that we... Address our songs, the way that we use language in our service, the way that we pray. We have to just begin to pay attention, real deep attention, to how we're how we're doing this. Example: Hey everybody, it's so great to see you here. Hope you had a good week. And and how about those Ohio State Buckeyes? I did that for you, Dave. Yeah. I mean, I've heard a lot of worship services begin that way. The words, the language matter. I was just told, hey, great to have you here. Hope you had a great weekend. How about this Ohio State Buckeyes? Or I am so happy to welcome you in the name of the risen Lord Jesus Christ, who though we cannot see is right here with us. It's going to be a good day because our risen Lord is here, and we're in the fellowship of his people. A, B. I'm going to take B. Uh, number two, we must intentionally plan for our people to be involved in lots of ways. In addition to the singing. I've got two degrees in music. I love music. I've spent decades leading the music of local churches. I get it. But if, we, if music is the only thing we ask people to do to be a participant, we're dead in the water. They are the prayers, they are the exhorters, they are the testifiers, and I can go on and on. It's the people's work throughout. And thirdly, we have to shift the emphasis from whether I am pleased to whether God is pleased. I know some pastors that are taking surveys on what people like in worship. Where's the emphasis there? On what pleases others. I have an idea. Why don't you have a Bible study on what God would like? And lay the surveys aside for a moment. And just start to study that. Because God has some ideas. When it's all said and done, uh, which is about now. And Brent, I'm going to play this by ear. I mean, I know that you have an 1130 thing, right? So, sorry about this. Uh, Because I wanted to do a little more Q&A. But let me conclude this way. Annie Stone says this, Annie Dillard, excuse me, in her book. um, That had something to do with stones, sorry. Annie Dillard writes, If you ask me why I go to church, I could start with these reasons. I'm quoting her now. To feel better. To be with people whose company I enjoy. To learn about Jesus. To show which side I'm on. To keep people from asking why I missed To sing my favorite old hymns, to be inspired, taught, and challenged by the sermon. But if you ask me why I worship, she says, you raise the discussion to another plane. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers. And signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense, or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. She concludes, When I worship, I expose myself to the power of God without any personal control over the outcome. Sometimes it brings healing, peace, forgiveness, confrontation, or hope. But always it calls me to move beyond the farthest point I have yet reached and pushes me into uncharted territories. Going to church is easy most days, worship is another matter. It's an awesome thing to know oneself fallen into the hands of the living God. Amen.
2: Yeah. We're going to take about 10 to 15 minutes for Q&A just because this is such an important topic. But um, Oliver's group that needs to go and head on out there, why don't you go ahead and step out if you're going to be going out with him in the ministry just because we know you are on a time schedule with that specifically. Please do that quickly and quietly. And while they're doing that, we're going to take a few minutes Um, This is a time for you guys, especially on um, the idea of worship, what she said in general, some really hard issues you want to talk about. This is a huge time to go and take a few minutes and really take advantage of being able to ask the questions that are on your heart and mind that you've been wrestling with. So I'm going to hand the mic back over to you. Shane's got a mic to run around if you have questions specifically in worship. And let's take a few minutes to really tackle this
0: issue. Anybody?
1: You mentioned exhortation on a few occasions, and this has been something that's been on my heart a lot lately. Um, what do you think is the importance of that in a worship setting? Um, and how do you think is like the best way to go about that?
0: I love the idea of exhortation. Um, it is a biblical um, command to exhort the community. First of all, let's define it. I mean, in its most simple terms, exhortation means to encourage one another, to call the church, to fellow believers, to call them to the standards that set forth in Scripture and holy living, the sanctified life, and so forth. Wesley loved exhortation, John Wesley. Uh, And the way he used it, I, I think, is very fitting for worship. The word would be preached, and then there was a time in the service for exhortation. Wesley would sit down and appointed and approved exhorters, not just anyone, but somebody who had already demonstrated the holy life and had been approved by Wesley, was permitted then to stand and serve as an exhorter. went something like this. Brothers and sisters, you have just heard the word. It's been presented with power. What are we going to do about this? In what way? can we be called forth to live out the gospel as we have learned what would you be willing to do what would you be willing to join me in and sometimes it went on for long amounts of time and by the way it's very interesting this was the open door for Wesley for the eventual approval of women in ministry because up until this point women were not allowed to preach but he had and favored women exhorters approved exhorters and from I mean it's a little it's kind of a you know a historical, Uh, journey here that isn't I can't represent in this short moment but that opened the door for him to have lay women pastors and eventually uh, women uh, eventually as you know appointed for the church so I think as a response to the word and I think that if you are really calling um, intentionally calling people to the holy life in the context of worship Uh, It it should be with a sense of the more mature individuals in the faith who are not perfect, of course, as none of us are, but who have a reputation of godliness that can call one another forth in faith. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Um, In relation to the stage play model, what are some practical ways that a worship team, a leader, or a church can help involve the congregation in worship?
0: I would begin by asking in what, what role presently is the worship team playing. Um, what I mean by that is who's starting the service, who's, pr- who's doing the singing, who's doing the praying, and reevaluate that in this way um, to say how much of what we do right now can be given back to the people. And therefore, if you're calling, for instance, the folks to worship, um, would it be possible for you to invite a youth group member or a child or a layperson that's not a singer but a person of faith, train them how to greet and open a service and let them do it? how much of what we do as worship leaders do we do, A, because we think a lot of ourselves, or B, because it just takes so much more work to train others. Would you agree? I mean, when I train my students at at school, I I can think of numerous times this semester where it would have been so much easier just to do this myself. But to invest in them learning how to do that took a lot more but they can do that reading the scripture who reads the scripture is it only the pastor ever can a layperson read that scripture so i would start to be asking just who does what and how much can begin to be shift this way but in the same token who can be how will you train them to become those leaders of worship Um, that's where i'd start there was a question over here did you have a question
3: know how, like, we we agree that, like, worship is a
2: lifestyle. But corporately, you would say that music is the greatest way to worship God?
0: I would not say that. Corporately, no. Did, are you asking that I, it, would I say music is the greatest way to worship God?
2: Through songs and worship, corporately. Okay.
0: Yes. So just to be clear, are you asking me if yes. I think music? I do not. Because I think that music is a primary way, and it's an excellent way, and I would even say a commanded way based on several verses of the Bible. But I am not going to make the claim that it's the best way or most important way. Because um, there are, it displaces some very uh, necessary components of worship. I might argue this. I might argue that the most important thing that we do in worship is pray. I can make a stronger case for that. But do you know how many churches in our world have no more intercessory prayer? It's gone. That's a very unbiblical approach. And if you pushed me, if you pushed me. I mean, again, I, I love music. I do music. I get music. I'm passionate about music. But I am not going to make the claim that it's the most valuable or most important thing that we do in worship. If you pushed me, I would say, let the song cease and get on our knees. That's, I mean, that's my blunt answer. Sorry. Sorry for the bluntness. Yeah.
3: Uh, we talked about moving the emphasis to... Pleasing. You
0: must be Canadian. Yes. Talk well, about, kind of. about... I've got dual. About...
3: I've got. Uh, we. If we're I know. I
0: can. I can tell on TV when I'm listening to a Canadian show because it's all about. Uh, yeah, Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just messing with you, and I don't know you, so I get to go home, and it's okay. <laughs>
3: so if we're if we're trying to move the focus from pleasing people to pleasing God, um, I kind of I have like a specific question, I guess, sure. to myself and and some of my friends. Um, uh, oftentimes, I think that specifically with like worship music and lyrics, uh, we have some very like theologically problematic phrases and things, not even that I just wouldn't agree with, but I think that are actually like heretical and we shouldn't be saying them or teaching them or influencing people with the words. Um, When I'm in a service or um, a setting where those songs are being sung or my friends are there, would it be better for me to not sing the words that I actually think are wrong um, or to sing them any ways and join with the congregation um, like what, what takes precedence
0: that's a great question isn't it there, have any of you wrestled with that it's a wonderful question number one I think that many of our songs are hugely prog- prog- problematic today they're just um, they have to be evaluated period Um, And there's a book that a couple of my colleagues and I wrote, a simple little book called Selecting Worship Songs, where we're just trying to put a rubric in the hands of worship leaders to say we best be thinking about this. Why? Because people are believing what they sing. And so I affirm your concerns. Um, If I were, and this happens to me, if I were in worship and in a corporate setting and I'm a worshiper, not a leader, and I part of the problem is that we don't see words until they're up on the screen we have no way without hymnals or other means to look at a whole text at once prior to singing that's problematic it is because we can only sing something that's flashed in front of us quickly and then suddenly we just sang a heresy oops sorry you know what I'm saying um but here's what, I can only tell you what I do. I want to be a fully invested participant, but I don't want to sing a heresy. And so when that is proposed to me, I pray through that. I probably don't sing it, but I don't pout. And I don't cross my hands and go, uh humph," And I don't look disdainingly upon those around me. But I pray through that stanza. I literally pray and keep on moving and join in when I can. Why? Because I'm investing in the community's worship, but I might address it with the leaders if it were appropriate. That's what I do. I mean, there are people in churches that do this, (laughs) but it's mostly about the style they don't like or something. Well, shame on us. We're either in or out. Come on.
3: So you were talking about giving God all that he's due in worship, and that's the purpose of worship. And then you got us to read that verse in Romans about that being offering ourselves as a living sacrifice to God. Uh, what are some practical ways to offer yourself as a living sacrifice in a worship setting today?
0: Well, I, I think one of the practical ways is to be um, 100% into whatever I'm asked to do. And that's how I offer one way that I offer myself. And so I don't, tr- I try not to pick and choose the degree of investment that I want to make in this based on what it means to me at the moment. But I'm going to consider myself 100% in on that. And the, the second thing that uh, I think that we can do, of course, is with our, our own spirits to prepare to worship. And I think a lot of times we go unprepared for morning worship, and I'm just saying morning worship, about Sunday worship. And I think preparing for that is key. And so we just don't show up at the door and click into worship mode. But how about some prayerfulness on Saturday night? How about some quiet on Saturday night? My dad's a pastor. He's still living. He's retired, but. Our family didn't do stuff on Saturday night. Why? Because we were preparing our hearts and minds for Sunday morning. And if we're out and about and shopping and partying and doing all that, it's really hard to drag ourselves intentionally into worship and feel like we can instantly turn it on. But I think it starts kind of like pre-Sabbath idea are a couple of things that come to mind. And I will only go as long as you let me, so... I mean, I'm I'm in for it, but you you, whatever.
2: We um she will be meeting with the worship leaders for lunch, and she should and Dr. Cherry will also be in the cafeteria tonight to answer questions. So we're just going to take one or two more now, just for the sake of corporate. If you have burning questions, and then we're going to move on. Thank
1: you so much. In the midst of a worship setting, when there are many different people around, um, different people like to take different ways of worship. Physically, I'm just curious what your perspective is on whether or not people's actions can be distraction a distraction to others' worship, or um, if it's important for each of us to show individually how we worship.
0: It's another very, very good question. Um, generally, in, in general principle, I'm open as a leader to uh, postures and expressions of worship that are simply happening in the congregation that I haven't called for. I, of course, stand in the admonition of Paul that all things are done decently and in order. And if there was something that was interruptive or problematic, I would address that. But in general, want people to feel free to, um, to express to God what they are feeling and experiencing. At the same time, Here's one thing that I'm trying to address in my own life and in the life of my students. Um, I don't think it's open fair on worshiping any way you want all the time alone because, it, again, it kind of represents individualistic worship as opposed to corporate worship. And I'll give you an example of this. I do think that primarily we should call the church to doing things together. And so standing in prayer, okay, together. Kneeling in prayer, okay, let's all kneel. Um, do you see what I'm saying? So that that in itself is actually a symbolic representation of unity and of what we're doing as a church, as a body, while welcoming some appropriate free expression. Here's a, I'm trying not to make this a pet peeve, but I hear this a lot. I, I really do hear this a lot. And I, I struggle with this, and it relates to what you've asked. I hear worship leaders say all the time, okay, we're going to go to, like, if they pray. (laughs) Um, We're going to go to God in prayer and take any prayer posture that you want. Feel free to kneel or stand or sit or give them all these options. Well, I resist that. As a leader, if somebody does that because they want to do it, have at it. I welcome it. But I'm not going to invite them to do whatever they want. Do you see the difference? But I am going to invite them Would you stand with me as we pray and raise our hands to God? And if 90% of the group does it, fine. If five doesn't, I'm not going to go out in the aisle and say, hey, what's with you? (laughs) But I'm just going to invite to do things together because that in itself is a symbol of togetherness. So I think we need to kneel together. Uh, I generally don't put time of prostration in the bulletin. Um, (laughs) It could be a little awkward. But I'll tell you this, if, if someone was in my service I was leading and felt led to prostrate themselves inside, I'd be going, hallelujah, thank you, God. But I wouldn't mention it, and I'm not going to ask the whole people to prostrate themselves before the Lord, though you could maybe in some settings. It's a, but I, I do think the, church, the leader needs to keep calling the church to doing stuff together while welcoming appropriate things as they occur is my answer. Is this helpful? We should have just done Q&A for two hours. <laughs> would have been better. Uh, right here. Oh. Hi.
1: Yeah. Um, just a question about your thoughts on... There um, it is again. The table. About uh, the table. <laughs> I'm not even Canadian. Oh, it's I rubbing live, off on you. I li- well, yeah. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> anyway, um, and just uh, the invitation to the Lord's Supper... Um, as a response to worship, um, or as a response to the invitation, where do you think that best fits within a service? And how often do you think that is? Anything else? Uh, no, that'll do.
0: Okay. Thank you. Um, I, I don't think it's a matter of right or wrong, but I do think that the Lord's table is best as a response to the word. Do you know why it appears before the word? for very pragmatic reasons. I didn't know this until I was reading James White a few years ago. I, also, I often wondered, disciples of Christ tradition, for instance, will often have, they have weekly uh, table, and they'll have it b- often before the preaching. So it goes like gathering, Lord's table, preaching, go home. And I wondered about that, because the historic model has a as a response to the word. And then I learned from reading James White, who's a, a masterful uh, church Worship historian recently died. Um, he said that actually that comes up surely for pragmatic reasons in the disciples of Christ. He said that due to the camp meeting tradition that involved that started in the very very early nineteenth century, a cup a few of whom the leaders ended up to be um, congregationalist disciples of Christ. They were Presbyterian pastors in the beginning. They said that in the camp meeting time they wanted to have. Um, the sermon be the very last thing in the service, no matter what, so that the altar call was. <laughs> and that if you moved the table, then there might not be as many people at the altar. And so, actually, that's a historically, um, you know, a historical answer of fact. Uh, and so, um, you know, I would not call it wrong to be in several, in a number of places. I think it's Sebastian's response to the word uh, weekly communion. I will say this seems to be the practice of the early church and the practice of the church for fifteen hundred years, and I think is would be a welcome uh, return.